Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts will discuss the text for Pentecost Sunday 2018. We really hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by these observations on these passages. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Today we're discussing the readings for Pentecost Sunday, which in 2018 is May 20th. And the readings in the lectionary for this Sunday are Ezekiel 37, verses 1 through 14, a portion of the, the dry bones vision of Ezekiel. Acts 2, verses 1 through 21, which is a section of the account of the day of Pentecost in the book of Acts. And then a selection from uh, Jesus' upper room discourse where he's talking about the gift of the Spirit uh, in John 15 and into John 16. And when we get to that, eventually, I uh, want to repeat what I said in the last episode, that we don't want to miss the intervening section that the lectionary leaves out. Uh, Jesus' promise of the Spirit surrounds a promise of participating in the sufferings of Jesus. But I want to start with uh, Acts, Acts 2, and I just let me uh, throw out a few thoughts, Alistair, and then I know you've done a good bit of work on uh, Pentecost and thought through the after, after effects of Pentecost in the book of Acts and thought about its typology in the Old Testament, so I want to uh, turn it over to you. But uh, let me just get a, a number of things on the table, uh, fairly basic stuff about the the theology of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost, of course, is a Jewish festival, preceded uh, the uh, coming of the, of the church, the gift of the Spirit. Among other things, Pentecost was a celebration of the giving of the law, and so the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost uh, that is given to the church is a uh, writing the law on the hearts of the apostles as the, the, the finger of God, the Spirit of God, wrote the ta- on the tablets of stone. So we have that analogy with the law and that contrast with the law. They're gathered together in an upper room and this mighty wind comes, the phenomena of the Lord's glory arrives as it arrived on Sinai uh, and uh, comes and fills the place where they are. There's a temple tabernacle overtones to that, uh, the glory of the Lord coming on the most holy place at the foot of Sinai, the glory of the Lord coming on the temple after the dedication prayer in, uh, in Solomon's time. Uh, the, that temple imagery carries out, uh, this is at least in part of the imagery of the apostles burning with flame, flames of uh, tongues of flame on their heads. Uh, each one of them has become a, a little altar uh, who is uh, um, burning as a living sacrifice uh, to God. And that they're lit up as living altars when the Spirit comes and fills the place that they are as, again, uh, the typology goes back to Leviticus, Exodus, Leviticus, and, uh, and into uh, Kings and Chronicles, where the, the glory fills the house of the Lord, and then fire breaks out from before the Lord and lights the altar. We have the same kind of movement here, the glory, the glory of the Spirit fills the place where they are and then breaks out and lights each of them as a small altar, as a living altar. Uh, and then, of course, we have the, the gift of tongues that's given, which is um, picking up on a, a number of things in the Old Testament. But most particularly, I'd say, is the, uh, the connection with Babel. 
we have a reversal babble uh, there, a judgment on tongues, confused tongues and divided the nations here. You have a, a small table of nations that's listed in Acts 2. And instead of uh, the Lord intervening to confuse the tongues, the Lord intervenes so that each one can hear the gospel in his own tongue. You have this miracle of tongues that unites the various nationalities into one body and uh, unites them together as one spirit. So um, I don't know which direction you want to go with with that, Alistair. Those are just some of the some of the uh, uh, kind of common typologies that we see intersecting here at Pentecost. One detail of this particular text that I've found quite a helpful avenue into exploring it in the passage that we've mentioned, I think it was two weeks ago, is the connection with Numbers 11 with um, the appearance to, or the taking of the spirit of Moses and placing it upon the 70 elders. So there's a, a spreading out of Moses' ministry so that he does not have to bear the weight of it all by himself. And a similar thing, I think, is happening here. But there is a reference within that particular passage to the statement that Moses wished that all the people of God were prophets. And here, the passage that's, that is take that theme is taken up within Joel's prophecy. And here, I think you have some sort of fulfillment of that. So I've explored the prophethood of the church, of believers more generally, within the context of of Pentecost and the account of it. I think it's it helps us to understand part of what's taking place here in the context of Sinai. You're told that it's a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And here I think there's something of the prophethood of all believers, the transition from the ministry of Christ to the ministry of the apostles, that's similar to the transition from the ministry of Elijah to Elisha, um, or the transition from Moses to Joshua, or from um, John the Baptist to Jesus. There's a similarity between Jesus' own baptism and the baptism of the church, preparing it for its ministry with the descent of the Spirit. And then there are other themes, such as the purging of the tongue, so that they are prepared to speak. You have Ezekiel is interesting because you have the rough hewn um, Hebrew of the initial chapter and then the God speaking to, um, to Ezekiel saying that he's not sending him to a people of rough tongue, but the Hebrew then changes into a more fluid and fluent Hebrew. Um, I think that's striking. Moses being prepared as um, Aaron being set up as his mouthpiece or um, the reference to Isaiah with his tongue being purged as he talks about himself being a people, someone who is among people of unclean lips and the stone from the altar is burning stone is placed against his lips to purify them to speak. And the play on the tongue and the tongue of fire, um, I think, is significant here. There's a fiery speech that is brought forth by the prophet. The prophet has the word of God burning within them, as we see within Jeremiah and elsewhere. And here, the law of God descends in a fiery form, much as it descended upon Mount Sinai, but it descends upon human hearts. And it is written within by the Spirit so that they might bear witness to that in prophetic fiery speech because out of the mouth of the prophets comes fire 
as we see in Revelation 13 and elsewhere. Right, and, and that's uh, you, you mentioned the Isaiah six passage, which is part of the part of the result of that uh, purging is that he becomes he can speak uh, as the seraph seraphim speak the burning ones. He becomes another burning one, uh, another fire breather. Uh, you have the same kind of imagery in uh, the two witnesses among the various signs that they do uh, in the city is uh, the, the fire proceeds from their mouths to devour their enemies. Uh, the other uh, one other thought that occurred to me as you were talking and that is the the place that the prophecy of Joel has in the the book of Joel Joel is a prophecy about the prophethood of the church uh, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your young men shall see visions your old men shall dream dreams uh, the spirits are going to be poured out on all flesh and that in the immediate context that doesn't mean Jews and Gentiles it means all sorts of different, all sorts of and categories, all sorts of conditions of men, as it were. Um, uh, but uh, within within Joel, this is a, a turning point from the land being devastated by a locust plague, perhaps an army, a locust plague that looks like an army. Uh, it's that locust plague is turning the the land uh, from an uh, from an Edenic garden into a wilderness. Uh, Joe actually says that it's like the Garden of Eden in front of this locust horde. It's like a wilderness behind it. You can see you can see wilderness spreading, but then the Spirit is poured out, and you have this turning point uh, where the uh, nations are uh, brought into judgment at the uh, a Valley of Judgment. Uh, you have a renewal of the creation that follows. So the gift of the Spirit to uh, all flesh, the gift of the Spirit to men and women. Sons and daughters is uh, uh, is is it's a it's a means toward the restoration of the creation. It's a means toward the restoration of Israel, which I think also uh, um, explains some of the cosmic language that follows that. Um, uh, the signs in the sky above the uh, the earth beneath, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. You have this cosmic imagery of uh, a, a world coming to an end. Uh, the gift of the spirit is uh, marking the the end of an old world and the beginning of a new one, but it's through that prophetic witness that those that the uh, the Lord is achieving that. It's through the prophetic witness of His church. What do you make of the significance of the theophany that occurs here? The um, phenomena of the sound from heaven, the rushing mighty wind, and the filling of the house. These seem to be themes that we see, for instance, in the um, baptism of Christ with the voice coming from heaven and the dove appearing, and elsewhere within um, various initiation events of our prophets. So, for instance, we already mentioned Isaiah's vision within the temple, or Ezekiel's vision of the heavens opened and the um, seeing visions of God, that the prophet is someone who has a perception of these particular realities. Not everyone does. Um, and that almost seems to be a test for the prophet in certain places. I, uh, Elijah says to Elisha that he will have the firstborn portion of his spirit, the double portion, if he sees him being taken up into heaven. And it almost seems to be a test of his prophetic perception. Is he able to see this reality? Yeah, I think the, um, a couple of thoughts about the, the phenomena that uh, open Acts 2, the 
the wind, I think, uh, puts us into, um, yeah, it's a theophany, it's the, it's Sinai, it's uh, the, the roaring and coming of the glory. Uh, maybe particularly it's the, the wind of the Spirit that's uh, at the beginning of the creation. Uh, it's the wind that blows over the floodwaters that uh, form the world into a new creation. Um, we'll get to Ezekiel 37 a little bit later in this episode, but um, there you have um, a wind that brings a, uh, a valley of bones back to life. But you also have the, you also have the fact that the, uh, um, Ezekiel's kind of blown about by the wind. He's carried uh, by the Spirit from place to place. You have that same, same kind of phenomenon that's going on in the book of Acts. After the Spirit comes, you have Philip, for example, is transported from one location to another by the Spirit, um, kind of uh, materializes in a new location because the Spirit is, is moving him. So uh, those kind of um, new creation themes, um, I think, in the background. But I, I think that's a, that's a great point about the, um, the, the test of prophetic insight being ability to see through the appearances. It, it's, it's kind of an apocalyptic imagination, uh, the ability to penetrate through the veil and see the actual, actual, what's actually going on behind the scenes. You think of uh, Micaiah, uh, the prophet at the end of 1 Kings, who is um, the true prophet of the Lord, and you know he's the true prophet of the Lord because he's not simply able to see the two human kings that are there, but he's able to see into a, a heavenly uh, courtroom and to hear the deliberations of that heavenly court. So that, that, that kind of prophetic insight is linked up with one of the basic privileges of prophets, which is the, the privilege of uh, being admitted to the Lord's court. That's, um, the Spirit allows entry into that environment, and the Spirit is also the one who gives the insight to uh, penetrate past appearances and to see, see the reality uh, behind it. The other passage I thought of as you were talking about Elijah and Elisha is the, uh, Elisha's servant uh, who is, when they're surrounded by, surrounded by an army, He's fearful, but Elisha asks that the Lord open his eyes, and then he he's able to see that uh, there's a an army, a, a cavalry of fire that's surrounding Elisha. It's as if Elisha is the focal point of this glory army that his servant can't see without this special insight. But um, Elisha is obviously aware of uh, the presence of this army and and is is confident the Lord will protect him because of that. So that, that's another example of this kind of uh, the spirit-given insight being uh, crucial to prophetic ministry. And then connected with Luke's gospel, Luke's gospel seems to foreground many of these themes of prophethood, as James Jordan has argued that there is, um, if priesthood is highlighted and the law is highlighted in in Matthew and kingship and Christ's royalty in um, Mark, Luke seems to foreground Christ as the peripatetic prophet who moves about, the one who moves in the power of the Spirit, the one who is like Elijah and Elisha, who's like Ezekiel. He's a figure who is also key events within his ministry. Luke foregrounds the issue of prayer. I think that's significant also when we look at the beginning of Acts, the emphasis upon the disciples being together in prayer, that that is part of Christ's prophetic ministry within Luke's gospel, 
is the fact that he's praying at these key events. He's praying as the heavens are opened and the spirit descends upon him. He's praying as the transfiguration occurs, etc. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, praying in the spirit uh, would be a, a great a great topic for an for a Pentecost uh, sermon uh, and and putting it into this putting it into this prophetic context. A further detail that I find interesting on this particular front is thinking about Luke three to four as Christ's a sort of initiation into his prophetic ministry. He's thirty years of age. The heavens are opened and were sees visions of God as Ezekiel did and then he's filled being filled with the spirit he's led in the spirit into the wilderness which is very much the language that we see within Ezekiel um, he's the son of man who's brought about in the spirit whereas in Matthew and in Mark um, Matthew foregrounds um, Exodus type language Jesus is led up into the wilderness by the spirit and mark exile or expulsion language jesus is thrust out into the spirit into the wilderness by the spirit and i think those dis differences maybe help to illustrate the way that luke is highlighting these prophetic themes prophetic themes that resurface in parallel with um christ's baptism in the baptism of the church in the spirit in um, acts 2. And you've particularly, as I as I recall, you've particularly been uh, interested in the links between Pentecost and Ezekiel. That's that's one of the things you you just mentioned. Uh, Jesus' baptism being linked up with the Ezekiel's vision of the glory. Um, our Old Testament reading is a portion of Ezekiel thirty-seven, which is the dry bones passage, and it um, has some obvious links to uh, the uh, to Pentecost, the event of Pentecost, and to Acts. Uh, Acts two and the account there, uh, you have a uh, a wind that gives life uh, and breath and uh, renews uh, renews uh, those who are dead. Uh, in Ezekiel thirty seven, this is an image of return from exile, uh, as uh, the Lord says at the end of uh, end of the passage that we're given for the reading. These bones are the house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up, our hope is perished, or completely cut off. But the Lord is going to bring them out from that grave uh, by his wind, by his breath, and by the word. Uh, so you have this that Pentecostal theme reflected there in Ezekiel. And this is following on from earlier events within Ezekiel when he talks about the way that um, the nation will be judged for its idolatry and their bones will be scattered around their altars later on and in some ways, Ezekiel is seeing the aftermath here, the bones picked apart by the birds of carrion and the, um, whitened by the heat and the dust has completely settled. And now can those bones live? Right. So it's, it's yeah, within Ezekiel, it's reaching back to references to the scattering of bones and the, the, the complete decimation of, of Israel uh, and Further back, it's reaching to uh, the original formation of Adam. Uh, you have a, a staged renewal of Israel. You have the bones come together uh, and reassemble. You have flesh put on the bones. But that is, uh, then you just have um, zombies. <laughs> you don't yet have living beings until he prophesies again 
and he prophesies to the breath, and the breath goes in and brings them back to life. So you have this, the same kind of staging process. The Lord forms Adam from the dust of the ground and then breathes into his nostril the breath, the breath of life. Uh, Israel is being formed here as the new Adamic people. If we extend this into the, the Pentecost, uh, we, we, we try to understand this in, in the light of uh, the season that we're, that, uh, where this text is assigned. Uh, it's indicating that the, the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost is a renewal of uh, humanity, that there's, humanity is being given a new birth by the outpouring of the Spirit. It's also a restoration of the nation, of um, the nation in particular. And maybe that's a theme that we can often be neglectful of when we talk about Pentecost, that they need to choose a 12th apostle to replace Judas to fulfill their number. They have 120 as part of the group. And it seems to be that this is the seed of a restored Israel. Right. Yeah, so, so the um, Pentecost itself, you're saying, uh, the event recounted in Acts 2, is a, is a restoration of the nation. Yep. Or a first, a first stage in that. Right. And there seems to be also this more generally within the account, maybe of John's gospel and then moving into Acts, there seems to be a progression of Christ breathing out, of Christ giving up the spirit at his crucifixion, breathing out the spirit, and then breathing upon his disciples in a sort of mini Pentecost event. And then this rushing mighty wind that we have on when Pentecost itself comes, the sort of building up of towards this greater wind that um, we see burst forth at Pentecost, which again harks back to Ezekiel 37. Yeah, and the uh, one of the one of the implications of seeing it from from this national perspective, uh, Ezekiel 37 is about the restoration of Israel from the death of particularly the death of exile. The, Israel has been sent out into the grave of Babylon. Now they're being restored by the word and by the spirit, by the wind. And Acts 2 would be the, the greater fulfillment of that. You have a return from exile that happens at the time of Joshua, Zerubbabel, Ezra, Nehemiah. But then you have a, a, a further return from exile, a completed return from exile, a return from exile from the presence of God, the Edenic exile that occurs at Pentecost and um, when the church is brought into the presence of the Spirit and um, the wind and the glory and the fire come and they don't, unlike the priests of the Old Testament, they don't have to, they don't have to leave. They're now prepared to be in the presence of that, uh, in the presence of that glory. Also seems to be a connection between this theme of national resurrection and then a, a more fully, a more full bodily resurrection at the final judgment that Jesus brings out in John 5. Um, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. And that connection between themes of national restoration and resurrection as a picture of national, um, the 
restoring of the nation and the deeper restoration that occurs through bodily resurrection. And connecting those, I think, is is significant. Um, it occurs, I, th- I think, that Ezekiel is pushing in that direction. But I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on how we should best connect these themes. Is this just a picture of national resurrection, national restoration, or does it look beyond that to um, resurrection? And if so, how do we um, hold those themes together? Are uh, you talking about Ezekiel 37? Yes. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think it's, uh, I, I, I do think that there's a, a, a multi-layered fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. You have, um, not always, but very frequently have a, uh, a near fulfillment that has to do with the immediate hopes of the people that are being, that are being addressed. Uh, Ezekiel's addressing an Israel that's um, uh, going into exile and is hoping for renewal in the future, and that it has that level of meaning to it. In some, in some sense, the, the uh, complex of events that occur uh, in the life of Jesus and the early life of the church are a fu- fuller fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So uh, the uh, restoration of the, from dry bones would be, uh, uh, again, happening in, in the, in the uh, resurrection ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Spirit at Pentecost. Uh, but I think that there's, um, you know, we know from the New Testament there's there's also a hope for a final resurrection, and so you have that would be a final layer of fulfillment. And the different details of the of the prophecy would be reflecting different levels of that at times. But I think, yeah, I think we we need to look at it in that multi-layered way, just to, uh, just to talk about an immediate historical fulfillment. You lose the Christological focus that the New Testament gives us. And then to just say everything is fulfilled in the uh, in the work of Jesus and the apostles in the in the first century, that misses the uh, sub eschatological character of the of the current age. We're we're not in the we're not in the final consummation. Uh, we're in the already, but there's still something to come. And so all the all the gifts and blessings that we currently have are going to be more fully realized and more fully given in the future. So that's uh, that kind of uh, staging out. I think is uh, is uh, important for seeing the you know the different dimensions of, of Old Testament prophecy. Further detail that I find striking within this passage is the agency given to the prophet himself, that God achieves His purpose through the prophesying of the prophet, and not just in ab- in abstraction from it. It's not as if the prophet is just a bystander or a mere witness of this event. He's one who's an active participant, um, the one by whom God is achieving his purpose. Right. So he's the one, who, he, he calls on the wind. He calls on the breath to come and breathe on those to come to life. So he's in, in, in some sense a mediator of the, the, of the life. It goes back to what we were uh, talking about last week with the um, passage from 1 John 5 where prayer becomes a means of uh, giving life. As we said last week, the Spirit is given so that we become uh, sources of living water, not just recipients of the living water of the Spirit. Let's move on to the final set of texts in, in John 15 and 16. And I think this, this brings out an important additional dimension of the Spirit's work that can be uh, missed. It can be missed partly because of, the, I think, uh, unfortunate translations in some of the traditional translators uh, translations of the uh, of the uh, New Testament, um, 
when Jesus talks about the Spirit, he calls the Spirit the parakletos, uh, the, the paraclete. Uh, and in the older English translations, this is translated as comforter, uh, which can carry the connotations of uh, one who comes to soothe and to calm. Uh, in my New American Standard, it's translated as helper, uh, which is a little bit better, but um, uh, doesn't really get to the... Um, to the precise significance of the word, the, the, the word is a, is a legal term. Uh, like much of the language of John, uh, it reflects this uh, notion that uh, uh, the Lord involved in a, um, a lawsuit among, with the nations, a lawsuit with Israel. Uh, Jesus has come in order to carry on that lawsuit and to bring it to completion. Uh, and uh, he's, he's a witness. That's a... Uh, that's a legal term. He calls on witnesses uh, like John the Baptist, and he calls on the witness of his own works. Uh, the Spirit comes in order to witness. Again, that, that's a legal term. And when the Spirit is identified, the Spirit is identified as the Spirit of truth, but also the Spirit who is a paraclete. That's a, that's a, legal, uh, a legal role. Uh, and the, the Spirit's work is described in um, legal terminology or legal categories. Uh, the Spirit comes uh, John uh, sixteen eight says he will convict the sin concerning convict the world rather concerning sin righteousness and judgment. We translate that into um, the categories of personal piety. Conviction means our personal conviction, our feeling of guilt when the Spirit comes on us, which I think is real, and I think that's the Spirit's work. But the the terminology is actually more public and legal. The Spirit comes to uh, be a witness that uh, a final witness against the world. Uh, that will complete the case against the Lord's lawsuit against the nations. So the Spirit's work is, uh, Spirit working obviously through people doing witness, but it's the Spirit's witness that's going to do that, uh, carry on that that, um, legal contest with the nations. Taking the verses that aren't included in the lection, but lie between these, um, the fact that the disciples will be excommunicated from the synagogues and facing that sort of opposition that's they are being tried but there is a sort of ironic reversal because although they're being put on trial it's by the work of the spirit that the whole world is coming being placed on trial um, and the legal character i think of the spirit as the the paraclete is significant at this point that um there are there is an apparent trial taking place with them being cast out by the synagogues and brought before kings and that sort of thing. But ultimately, it's the world that is being judged and brought before the bar of God's court. Right. So so the disciples are uh, sharing in Jesus' uh, uh, Jesus' work, uh, both in the suffering and being opposed by uh, the synagogue and by the Jewish leaders, but uh, also in the kind of ironic reversal of that that you have in Jesus' own trials. Jesus' trials become, uh, as it becomes clear as they proceed, that the, the ones who are really on trial, are, it's not Jesus who's on trial, it's the Jews and the, the Roman authorities that are on trial. And the same thing that happens with the apostles. They're bearing witness uh, in this kind of paradoxical um paradoxical way where they're what when they, it looks like they're on the defensive they're actually the ones who are carrying out the prosecution the role of the spirit as 
um, only coming as Christ goes away. Um, what are your thoughts on how we should best understand the interplay between the ministry of Christ and the Spirit that he's exploring here? Yeah, the, a number of things that occur to me um, that uh, uh, one one is the um, have this uh, recurring pattern in Scripture that goes back really to the very beginning, uh, where uh, the Lord uh, places human beings in situations of threat and then withdraws. So um, God formed Adam from the dust of the ground, placed him in the garden, made a woman for him, and then is not there when the when the serpent comes to tempt Eve. You think, why didn't he stick around? Uh, he could have helped. He could have reminded Eve what he had said. Uh, he could have prodded Adam to intervene. But the Lord shows up after the fact. And you have that in John's Gospel too. The John 9 passage uh, is a famous example where uh, Jesus gives sight to a blind man who was born blind. Um, the man goes through a whole series of trials and uh, uh, accusations from the Jews. His witness becomes increasingly bold and he's increasingly clear about uh, Jesus' identity. But Jesus is absent that whole time and it's not until he's cast out of the synagogue that Jesus shows up. You think, where were you when I needed you? Um, but I, I think that, uh, I'm arguing in my commentary on Revelation that that happens through a long stretch of Revelation that uh, uh, if you read it as a, as a, as a continuous narrative that uh, it's quite striking that, that Jesus is uh, is absent from long stretches when when the saint seems seems to need him most. So I think that the fact that the the fact that Jesus withdraws is part of this pattern that I think is I think it um, one one aspect of it at least would be the uh, issue of the maturation of the human race. God uh, God is our Father who wants us to grow, and that growth comes partly through conflicts uh, with op- with uh, opponents, enemies, uh, uh, with conflict with the devil. Uh, and um, the Lord, the Lord is always present. I'm not denying God's omnipresence, but He doesn't intervene to uh, deliver us from these situations. He puts us in situations of threat, as He does with the apostles here, uh, and they have to uh, trust Him and grow in Christ's likeness as they go through those, as it were, in His absence. That's only one one part of it, because um, the, the, on the other hand, the, Jesus promises to be present with them by the Spirit. Uh, so there's a um, there's not a it's it's not a comp- obviously not a complete absence, but the the withdrawal of Jesus I think is an important dynamic. And in in that sense, Jesus dwelling them in them by the Spirit, it's almost as if the departure of Christ paves the way for a different sort of coming of Christ. That He dwells with them at this point, but He will later dwell in them. And I think those themes are explored within chapter fourteen. I will not leave you orphans, I will come to you. One thing I wanted to highlight, and uh, just I, I think I'll raise it more as a question than as a, as a claim, because I don't know the answer. Uh, I'm not sure of the answer. I have suspicions. Um, it strikes me that uh, the passages or the por- parts of the passage that are left out have uh, direct references to Jewish opposition to the church. So uh, John 15, 25, just before the text that we're assigned uh, they have this in, they have done this in order that uh, the word may be fulfilled which is written in their law they hated me without a cause obviously re- a reference to Jewish opposition to the church uh, 
And then the first three verses of chapter 16 that you already cited, uh, they will make you outcast from their synagogue and hours coming from everyone who kills you uh, to think he's offering service to God. The synagogue is obviously a reference to uh, Jewish centers of worship, and you think of uh, the book of Acts. Who is it that thinks killing Christians is offering service to God? What's principally Paul in the book of Acts, and he's authorized to do that by the by the chief priests. But I think it's it's um, it's curious to me that the uh, particular verses that are left out of the lectionary here uh, are the ones that have to do with that Jewish opposition, and it just raises the suspicion in my mind. Uh, that uh, we're dealing with a post-Holocaust lectionary that's squeamish about um, highlighting the Jewish opposition to the early church. Yes, I think that's likely the case. And actually, as we look back through the the discourse, um, Upper Rome discourse, I wonder whether there are themes also that help us to see a contrast between the place that Christ is preparing almost as the temple um, in all in opposition to the synagogues that they'll be cast out of, that one of the things that the Spirit does is prepare a home, and the place that Christ that Christ goes away to prepare this place, but the place is not heaven above, rather it's the place of the church. The it's the heavenly Jerusalem, but it's also a realm that is that we are part of, and the church is prepared in heaven, but we are on earth. And it's prepared on heaven and earth together. Um, and Christ dying, rising again, ascending to give the Spirit and forming the church is a bringing us into his presence by the Spirit. And as we're cast out, as the apostles are cast out by the um, synagogue leaders and others, there is this new house being formed. And the Spirit's role within that is um, crucial. Yeah, that, that fits, I think, with... Um uh, what Jesus, the way that the the Father's house phrase works in the Gospel of John, um, obviously the first time we have it is in the cleansing of the temple in John 2. Then here he says, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I think the c- connection is certainly with the temple. And uh, uh, it makes sense to me that the, the temple that he's talking about is not uh, a, a heavenly temple to which we go when we die, uh, but he's preparing a place uh, a place of reception for those who are cast out, um, yeah, as you said, a, a home for those who are going to be excluded from the current life of, uh, of Judaism. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.